Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another installment of Sink Into the Earth. So just as a brief background, my name is Tyler. I'm currently enrolled within the Masters of Environmental Science at U of T with a focus in conservation and biodiversity. And I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph, where I received my Bachelor in Bioresource Management. And now here joined with me is... My name's Abiram. I'm also a Masters of Environmental Science student here at U of T studying conservation biology. I also did my undergrad here where I specialized in biology. I'm Kirsten Scott, and I'm in the same program as Tyler and Abby Aram. I did my undergraduate degree many years ago at the University of Western Sydney in Australia. And uh, when we were throwing ideas around for this podcast, I told Tyler and Abby Aram a goofy story that I'm going to share with everyone now because it informs why I chose the paper I did for this discussion. I'm a little older than the average student in this class by give or take two decades. And consequently, <laughs> I actually remember the first time I went on the internet, unlike many of my peers who were practically born with a smartphone in their hands. It was 1994 or five, and I was in grade eight. Our elementary school principal, Mr. Martin, took a group of us into the main office to show us the internet, capital letters. <laughs> um, looking back, I'm pretty sure the school had one computer that was hooked up to the local bulletin board system or something similar, so it hardly counted as the internet. Um, anyway, we all crowded around the monochrome monitor and uh, sound effect, <laughs> that delightful <laughs> dial-up noise that people of my generation will recognize, probably ensued, although I don't remember specifically. But I do recall Mr. Martin couldn't get the computer to connect right away, and it took a couple of tries. I think we were supposed to be impressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In reality, it was a DOS prompt, and frankly, that command line interface was never really that impressive. I don't really remember what happened after that, um, but what stuck with me about that experience was an adult was trying to make a big effort to share an important new thing with us. And as kids tend to do, I think we were just like, okay, cool. <laughs> and we went about our day. And little did any of us at that time, I mean, except maybe like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, know how the internet would forever change humanity. And in the nearly 30 years since my initial internet experience, technology has advanced light years. It's really hard to keep up, or so an almost dinosaur like myself feels. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great story to introduce our topic of discussion, which will be centered around the progression and enhancement of technology within the field of conservation. So as we know, technology has influenced all aspects of modern day human life. And when focusing our lens on the field of conservation, there's a clear connection between the technological advancements of our world and the introduction uh, of innovation conservation techniques that have been directly utilized by researchers and scientists on a global scale. So as a collective, we have researched a different emerging uh, conservation technology to present and discuss the possible applications, limitations, as well as future directions. <laughs> I get into the details of camera trapping, the word camera trap might sound highly invasive to a species, but it actually doesn't harm wildlife at all. The name actually comes from the way that technology is able to capture wildlife on film. The images that camera traps have collected have been featured in a number of documentaries, social media platforms such as Instagram and LinkedIn, and they've even played essential roles in citizen science projects. What's less known, however, is that the camera trap has a rich history that goes back more than 100 years, as it's been used since the 1800s. And over time, they might have gone from being a rare experimental conservation measure used by just a select amount of people 
to now becoming a mainstream technology which is used by thousands of conservation professionals and enthusiasts such as photographers, hobbyists, and biologists. The modern camera trap is a simple digital camera that's connected to an infrared sensor which has the ability to sense the warm heat that our moving species emit. And when an animal moves past the sensor, it essentially makes the camera activate and it'll record an image or video. And camera traps can be left in the field to monitor and watch a species habitat or ecosystem for weeks or even as long as months. And with this technology, you have the potential to actually record some of the rarest events which occur in nature. Camera traps are actually not as complex and elaborate as you might think. They're actually no different than everyday cameras, other than the fact that they have that infrared sensor attached that takes a picture whenever they sense movement. Camera traps help us uncover important information about rare species and their habitats, which can then be used to ensure that they're effectively protected. For example, in Sumatra, an island in Indonesia, camera traps are utilized to help researchers conduct surveys that will provide an idea of tigers' territories in their rainforest. These maps let environmental officials know where tigers live, and they then have the opportunity to discuss this valuable information with their local governments to help inform policy or assist with land use decisions. Camera traps are also helpful in providing data on particular species, locations, their size of their populations, and their biotic interactions with other species. They also help us understand how humans and livestock interact with each other and essentially other forms of wildlife. Currently, we have networked camera traps which are capable of sending images over the phone in real time, which has been very effective in the fight against poaching. Newer software are now allowing researchers to access images at a much faster rate than before. And overall, this improves our understanding of humans' impacts on wildlife and it helps the land managers make better decisions at both small scales, such as improving connectivity within a protected park, and even large scales, such as the creation of new global policies. So now I'll get into a couple of conservation case studies where camera traps were used. So in 2019, 120 camera traps were placed within an Indonesian park and they've recorded the first ever video of Javan rhinos mating in the wild. And the Javan rhino is severely endangered as there's only 68 of them found in the wild. Can I, can I interrupt you for a sec? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> Do you know if camera traps record sound? Because I really want to know what a rhino sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty clear that this was really good news as there was potential for growth within the population. And even greater news is that in early 2023, two new Javan rhinos were detected with the use of camera traps. So the second case study was a U.S. nonprofit and a group of volunteers teamed up with a number of nature reserves within South Africa and Indonesia to monitor wildlife and help with the fight against illegal poaching using connected camera traps. The project workers essentially placed cameras at recorded sites of human activity where hunting would occur. Then they connected the cameras using networks to the managers on sites at the protected reserves and volunteers would also monitor live feeds of species. 
They would then use this information to inform each other of sightings such as targeted wildlife and the potential intruders and poachers that are detected using those camera images, which allows the park rangers on site to take very quick action. If the threat assessment software detected a human in the image, it sends an alert to the project manager. However, the software still misses some, so that's where the volunteers come and monitor the live feeds and send details and the photos to the team at the site. The anti-poaching program technology allows naturalists such as us to work from home across the world to monitor activity while the park rangers are off from work. And by January 2017, the workers detected 180 break-ins into the protected reserves, including rhino and bushmeat poachers. So now I'll get into a paper I selected on this topic, which is titled A Review of Camera Trapping for Conservation Behavior Research by Kara Vaji et al. 2017. And essentially, it's a meta-analysis, meaning that the authors reviewed several papers on camera trapping and focused on three areas of studies. The first was documenting anthropogenic impacts on behavior. The second was incorporating behavior responses into management planning. And the last field of study was using behavioral indicators, such as giving up densities and daily activity patterns. So the first area of study, they found that using camera trapping to document a species movement pattern can improve our understanding of responses to disruptions and it can be used to help with the design and creation measures to improve species movements. In science, it's common to describe a species movement as dispersal, and as the authors discuss, the potential for camera traps to individually identify species and make assumptions about them is very rare. For example, cameras are able to quantify use dispersal routes and movement corridors. This information can then be used to improve connectivity for species. And essentially, connectivity is the free space that animals can access to move around. The second area of study is on behavioral modification, which focuses on keeping or trying to change species behaviors. Camera trap surveys can help us with this. For social behaviors in animals, they're important to help us understand for conservation, and the authors state that camera traps can inform behavior-sensitive management. Social species interact and live together like us humans, and as a result, they have complex relationships with social structure, and they're susceptible to rapid change with social displacement with one or more individuals. Camera traps can help us understand these complex relationships and dynamics. And for the final field of study, animals have been known to adjust their foraging, also known as food-seeking behavior, depending on the extent of human disturbance to their environment. Behavioral indicators are used to measure the state of animals and the environments that they inhabit. It discusses important conservation issues such as a loss in a species population or destruction in their habitat. Monitoring behavior works as an early warning system. For example, camera traps can look at nearby food sources and realize that populations have declined or there's an increase in predation rates, and they offer a safe method of analyzing more in-depth topics between individual species and their trophic interactions. The author also mentions that camera traps are used to collect data on multiple species, either as bycatch or in a focal study. 
Overall, animal activity patterns are shaped by a number of factors, and camera traps help us uncover these things. Super cool, Ibiram. Um, you talked a little bit about the software not necessarily being able to detect uh, people. Mm -hmm. What are some other disadvantages of camera trapping? Yeah, so while the camera device itself is not that complex, the issue with camera trapping is mainly about how film is developed for the less up-to-date technology, because not all technology is fully up-to-date, depending on the country and the resources that they have. Sometimes the cameras are placed in very remote locations, such as high elevations or even in the middle of a tropical rainforest. <laughs> so it could take several days to actually hike and receive this footage. And cameras also must be moved over certain periods because their flashes could actually trigger animals. And as a result, it would cause those animals to avoid that area in the future. Right. Okay, I also have a question as well. Okay. Um, I've always wondered how much do these camera traps cost and say for a project or I know it, they could vary in size but mm -hmm. roughly what's the cost of these cameras so I found information on this from the WWF foundation and essentially it depends on the type of camera which could be a digital camera or a film camera but the price ranges approximately from 400 to 700 US dollars and for Canadians like us that would be from 550 to 850 and you're also paying the field technicians who check and obtain this footage. And obviously their wages largely depend on the organizer. As you may know, uh, drones have seen a recent explosion uh, recreationally. And it appears as though this has expanded beyond pleasure and hobby and began to enter a variety of industries as well. So for instance, with my experiences working for a landscape architectural company last year, uh, we began to use drones on a daily basis to monitor, say, project progress, take pictures, uh, and within my role, conduct vegetation assessments, um, as well as vegetation counts. And I had even heard actually of roofing companies that started using drones to assess neighborhoods and client roofs just much more easily. However, in focusing our scope more now on conservation science, remote sensing technologies are widely utilized throughout the field of conservation due to the fact that research and monitoring is almost dependent um, on the use of these techniques. So based on this, the application, the applications we will discuss shortly, um, scientists and ecologists have very much transitioned to the use of more affordable methods, resulting in a shift to the use of unmanned aerial vehicles, and more specifically drones. So first off, as I just mentioned, the use of drones are much cheaper compared to other remote sensing technologies. And this is something that works to answer one of the key limitations and restrictions associated with a lot of environmental science research, which is funding. Uh, through quick internet search, I was able to find that the ground surveys for a three-year research cycle can cost upwards of $250,000. Wow. I know it's, it's, it, can, it can get really, really expensive. And when you think about it, a drone could honestly only cost a fraction in comparison. So... Uh, some drones can cost only $600, um, and then they can obviously reach upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and this obviously comes with added features. Uh, in addition to this, drones are able to be quite versatile and accomplish tax as, tasks such as population or individual monitoring, uh, remote sensing, as we touched on already, uh, as well as study organisms within accessible areas by ground, uh, and less they're also less invasive and labor-intensive than traditional methods. 
And however, then in focusing more on the technological innovations associated with drones, some of the key features these drones can possess include optical infrared, uh, which I'll actually give you guys a case study shortly, UV light sensors, sensors for temperature, pressure, humidity, uh, connectivity, as well as chemical sensors to detect gases. So it's clear that they're already revolutionizing within their technology to be more than just a remote sensing option. So I have a few case studies that I wanted to kind of talk over with you guys just to so you, just so you guys can get a better uh, grasp of how these are being used. Um, so a study conducted in 2020 was looking to track and monitor two subspecies of endangered primates within uh, southeast Brazil. So clearly there are challenges in studying these regions um, as, there are a lot, as there's a lot of dense forests. So it may be hard to conduct ground surveys and it would most likely be extremely expensive to get flyover data because you would need thorough data. So to combat this, researchers deployed, researchers deployed a DJI Mattress 200. So DJI is just a company and they equipped it with a 4K camera and a thermal sensor. So I'll show you guys a quick picture of the results. Um, so here, I'll just turn my laptop for you. So the picture on the right here shows what just the image itself looked like. And then the mm -hmm. picture on the left is the, um, is the one with um, infrared. So you can see they circled five of the primates there that they found, whereas this picture on the right, you would have no idea, right? You you wouldn't be able to see it at all. That's crazy. I that know, right? Because <laughs> And just looking at that with the naked eye, you'd have absolutely no, no idea, you right? You see anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so wow. just for people who are listening, if you wanted to take a look, if you go to Google Scholar and type in drones for conservation, um, new techniques to monitor primates, it is a paper published by Fabio Rodriguez de Milo in 2021. Uh, so you guys can just take a look. It's, a, it's, it's actually really cool. Um, so another application which drones are being utilized within the realm of conservation refers to enforcement and surveillance. So again, as we've spoken in some of our other classes, um, a lot of enforcement work is limited by the funding um, as well as the efficiency to survey large areas. So again, drones have been utilized to more rapidly survey these large areas from a temporal scale. And through my research, I found a really cool case study where illegal logging within forested regions of Sumatra, India, were identified through the use of drones. So within this case specifically, drone flyover was able to identify logging within dense forested regions as there was smoke billowing above the trees from people cooking bushmeat who were working at these sites. So essentially they gave away their position. <laughs> so it's <laughs> quite, wow. quite, quite crazy. Um, and then lastly, one more of the major applications refers to the monitoring capabilities associated with these much smaller and affordable drones. So in using monitoring as somewhat of an umbrella term, researchers are using drones to more efficiently and consistently track species. So when I say consistently, um, it's just as simple as putting the drone up in the air and you can fly it around and kind of get your research in compared to traditional methods where you may need to use a helicopter or even just remote sensing photographs. It's, it's just much more convenient. Um, and moreover, there are further applications to track cryptic species. Uh, as there's much less of a presence associated with, with them, so ones that may be skittish. Um, and then also more dangerous species as well, right? It's not like you can get five feet away from a rhino or an elephant and <laughs> take some take some videos, right? But so. does the drone capture the sound? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think they do. I yeah. think they do. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, so through this, you're able just to collect much more consistent and accurate data. Um, mm -hmm. And this opens the door to better understand things like animal behaviors, um, ecosystem function and the as well as the ecosystem classification um, just due to the fact that you're able to get a lot more data and animal behavior you're allowed to 
I like I like using the analogy of you're a fly on the wall because I feel like you're just this little half a pound or 300 gram object that's just kind of quite silent and flying over I'm flying over species. <laughs> yeah, the fly on the wall analogy is really neat. Um, are there any limitations on that? Like you talked about the drones are small. I don't know. Do they get damaged or like what are some what mm-hmm. are some of the downsides maybe versus like being there in person? Yeah. So I guess from at least when I fly mine and stuff like that just whether it be recreationally or for conservation, there's laws and regulations associated mm-hmm. with it. So each country possesses their own legal requirements regarding and how drones can be operated. So for instance, in Singapore, you need a license no matter what. Whereas here in Ontario, as long as the drone is under 256 grams, a license isn't required. So a lot of companies will market their drones at 255 so <laughs> right. so it's so it's just one under so you don't need to get a license yeah. right mm-hmm. but obviously the more powerful ones you definitely need a okay. license yeah. um and also just certain countries prohibit the flight of drones in restricted areas such as power plants as well surrounding areas such as airports which makes sense yeah. right people Safety. yeah so uh, that's another one is possibly um operational restrictions so at least i know with with my drone i have a dji mini 2 and um whenever i go to fly that there's a map that almost shows there's like a red there's like red circles where you can't fly and i'm not sure if you can actually even take off in those areas so hopefully the user interfaces on these apps are strong enough to restrict flight in these areas um and then just the other i would say another restriction would be just wildlife and human danger so as they're 100 percent user operated there's obviously concerns related to human harm due to collisions yeah. um or even wildlife harm i know for for some species it can kind of be a nuisance i would I would assume because they do make some noise right Um, and then also just a more general limitation associated with whether it be recreational drones or conservation drones is the privacy implication Mm. as people obviously don't want to fly on camera invading their (laughs) privacy right which which is which is completely understandable I really enjoyed that and my question for you is were there any other stories or case studies that sort of thing about drones that interested you that you didn't actually speak about hmm let me think (laughs) um actually yeah there's there was one that i found that was really cool where um it was looking at the impact of whale watching um as well as whale monitoring on the impact of whales so they were looking at the impact of the impact if that makes sense (laughs) right (laughs) so um and they recognized that that boats used for both tourism as well as monitoring were causing short-term and long-term noise disturbances so they looked at humpback whales and they use drones to go over the whales and then at certain distances um, away from them that the boats would travel. They would look at the behavior of the whales based off how much they're surfacing and how they're moving around and stuff like that. Yeah. And they found that that there is short-term and long-term disturbances. So they somewhat concluded that drones were being utilized in order to monitor uh, the effects of boats. And it was concluded that drones are a great alternative to boats as they're less intrusive. class um, at a number of different times uh, about prioritization and triage in conservation practices. Uh, If you recall back in September, Dr. Mandrak opened his class in applied conservation biology with the question, are all species equal and should all species be conserved equally? But I think as students entering this field, this notion of potentially life or death decision making for conservation's sake based on merit as determined by who, has been really quite hard for us to grapple with. 
In addition, for those of us who were fortunate enough to attend the UN Convention on Biodiversity's 15th Conference of the Parties in Montreal last December, we saw how that event was tagged as the last chance to reverse the decline of nature. So I think it's fair to say the state of biodiversity is dire, and we know the value of biodiversity, both intrinsically and in terms of the services it provides humanity, clean water, food and medicine, materials, cultural and social benefits, anything else? I think you got a lot of them there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so we're also familiar with the threat of climate change, plus humanity's consumption of resources. It's estimated there'll be another 2.5 billion people on the planet by 2050. So imagine 9.8 billion humans running around all consuming stuff. It's kind of scary, right? It's insane. Yeah. (laughs) And as more people are increasingly sharing the same space as wild species, how do we selectively safeguard or restore the intact ecosystems needed to preserve the biodiversity that's keeping us all alive? Well, possibly because I remember the world before the internet, as evidenced by my previous story, (laughs) I see technology as a tool, not a given or a necessity in life. And as a result, I really like the idea of answering this critical question of prioritization and conservation, with humanity putting technology to what I term good use, rather than us being at technology's beck and call, as is often the case these days when something dings or beeps at us. And so accordingly, I wanted to find both some hope in this somewhat overwhelming and gloomy discussion on prioritization to prevent biodiversity loss, and I also wanted to learn more about how artificial intelligence might be able to help us here. So I went digging around on, you guessed it, the good old internet. No dial-up sounds this time. (laughs) And there's a fair bit of research on artificial intelligence, AI, in conservation. I found a paper titled, Improving Biodiversity Protection, through Artificial Intelligence, published in May 2022 in the journal Nature Sustainability. And what appealed to me here is the use of AI to create a a completely new framework for spatial conservation prioritization. The authors developed an AI tool called CAPTAIN, a catchy acronym for Conservation Area Prioritization Through Artificial Intelligence. Booyah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, They thought about that one a lot, I bet. (laughs) And this tool quantifies the trade-off between the costs and benefits of area and biodiversity protection. And this idea of trade-offs when planning protected areas isn't new. Marksan, the most commonly used model, employs an algorithm to identify a group of protected areas that meet a conservation target with minimal economic cost. So basically, like, how do we save money and protect species at the same time? However, Markson and other similar tools do a one-time only optimization. So this is like a static snapshot and it's incorporating a single initial gathering of both biodiversity and cost data. And while these models can be manually updated and rerun, they don't incorporate natural stochasticity, so climate change or variation in anthropogenic stressors or in species specific sensitivities. Another difference between Marksan or similar current models and the novel Captain AI framework is Captain is explicitly designed to minimize loss, typically of species, within the constraints of a limited budget, while Marksan's default is to decrease the costs of reaching a conservation target. And where AI and this Captain framework really shine over a traditional model like Marksan is the idea of a reinforcement learning algorithm. 
So this is designed to find the ideal balance between learning from the current state of the system and from action. And the effects of these actions, aka rewards, are quantified by an outcome. Actions are chosen by a neural network and they depend on the state of the system. And the neural network has optimized parameters to maximize the rewards the system gets from the actions. So Captain can optimize conservation areas by considering static or dynamic species monitoring input data to achieve a user-defined goal, like minimum species loss in an area, while it respects constraints such as a set financial budget. It can create a static outcome where all available budget is spent at once, maybe, say, purchasing land to set aside as a protected area, or it can optimize for a conservation policy that develops responsively over time. The authors of this paper, Silvestro et al., state their work is the first time that reinforcement learning has been implemented as a conservation tool. And what is also interesting is that once Captain is trained, it can identify conservation priorities in space and time using actual empirical data or simulation outputs. Um, And the the researchers used Captain to answer four questions about conservation in the real world. They looked at what is the impact of data collection methods on effective conservation planning. And I'm going to come back to this in more detail because it involves citizen science, which I think is somewhere else we can really um, leverage kind of a powerful resource in conservation. The second question was, what trade-offs come about depending on the optimization variables, such as economic value, species richness, or total area protected when trying to select areas for conservation? The third question they looked at was, what traits do winning or losing areas have when these areas are selected um, for protection, as well as what traits do successful uh, species generally tend to have? And the last question they looked at was how does the Captain framework compare to a Marksan model uh, when they used a real world data set of endemic trees in Madagascar? So back to that first question about data collection methods. Captain showed that inputting full repeated monitoring across multiple time steps for species presence and abundance resulted in choosing a protected area that conserved on average 26% more species than a random conservation policy choice. Interestingly, when testing the input of a citizen science recurrent monitoring strategy of only presence absence data into the AI framework, the results pointed to the selection of a protected area with a 24.9% improvement in the number of species conserved over the random policy choice, even when considering error typical in citizen science. So those are pretty similar results, highlighting how useful the contribution of consistent citizen science monitoring can be in conservation area planning. Overall, both approaches where inputs from multiple time steps are considered outstrip the traditional tactic of gathering species data once. This static method is more typical of software like Marksan and only suggested a conservation area that would save from extinction about 20% more species than a random conservation policy. 
to suggest conservation areas and therefore future policies that reliably minimize species loss while considering stochasticity, the researchers also ran CAPTAIN with varying species composition and distribution data, different climate change patterns, and anthropogenic pressure simulations. They found when doing this and using the inputs of multiple time step monitoring or citizen science monitoring, the AI framework created reliable area selections that minimized species losses in 97% of the simulations as compared to a random baseline policy. When using a one-time only static snapshot of initial species data, the AI framework created reliable area selections that minimize species loss in 91% of the simulations. This really goes to show that uh, having even basic presence absence data as an input to a model informs effective conservation policy design, and this can be cost-effectively augmented with citizen science efforts. Other key findings from the CAPTAIN framework are that trade-off analyses indicate economic value and total area protected should not be used as proxies for biodiversity protection. It's not too surprising. Basically, CAPTAIN says you don't get better biodiversity outcomes if you're gunning to protect a certain quantity of land. And this optimization goal can even lead to considerable loss of species which is a little concerning given spatial extent of protection has been and remains at the heart of international conservation targets. You know, we're talking about protecting 30% of the world's land and sea, but these AI models are telling us if you're just picking a number of area of land to protect, you might actually be losing out on the number of species that you're you're, um, conserving. Additionally, While the aforementioned might be fairly intuitive, Captain also showed something counterintuitive, which is that choosing areas for protection based on current species richness doesn't really give the best outcomes. Instead, selecting areas that span a range of different species richnesses that reflect environmental gradients result in what's termed protection complementarity for multiple species. Lastly, regarding the comparison they did to other models, the researchers ran CAPTAIN using a real-world data set from Madagascar looking at endemic trees, and this had recently been put through a Markson conservation planning experiment. And within the set financial constraints of that policy design, CAPTAIN outputs met the goal to protect 10% of the range for all species in 68% of the simulations. Whereas only up to 2% of the marks and simulations um, reach that 10% range protection target. So based on this, the researchers conclude that CAPTAIN has the potential as a useful tool for informing on-the-ground decisions by landowners and policymakers. But they also suggest that AI techniques for choosing areas for protection should not replace human judgment because ultimately... Our interactions with quote-unquote nature are so multifaceted. I'm going to close out by reading the final part of the paper's conclusion because I think it's really profound. The authors state, It is now time to acknowledge that the sheer complexity of sociobiological systems multiplied by the increasing disturbances in a changing world cannot fully be grasped by the human mind. As we progress in what many are calling the most decisive decade for nature, we must take advantage of powerful tools that help us steward the planet's remaining ecosystems in sustainable ways for the benefit of people and all life on Earth. 
which I think is kind of a poetic way of saying we should hustle in undertaking the critical step of identifying priority areas for targeted protection. And using AI will likely help us do that. So much the better if we're able to incorporate citizen science monitoring of species presence absence into this work of selecting areas to protect. Awesome. Um, I have one question for you. Um, so do they mention kind of the future of this um, AI technology? Are they plant like, is, is this something that they'd want to sell to countries and hopefully be employed by everyone and just to be consistent? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, if you go to www.captain-project.net, you can download the software for free under a Creative Commons license. Uh, it takes you to a GitHub portal to do that. Although I'm not exactly sure of the hardware that you would need to run it through or how that aspect works. But it seems like these researchers are making their programming available for free. And there's lots of really user-friendly information in everyday English on that website that explains what Captain does. For example, we use reinforcement learning to train models for conservation prioritization that best use available data and resources. Captain models can work with basic species distribution data, but can handle complex multi-dimensional data and their temporal trends, including land use and climate change. So I suggest uh, taking a look at that website if you want to learn more about Captain because it looks like it's a publicly available program. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I also have a question. I love how you did AI because it's kind of like a full circle moment from your original story <laughs> on the internet. But yeah, my questions for the future conservation students that would be in our shoes in like a couple years or even decades. Do you think that teaching these students how to navigate AI and potentially use it would be beneficial? And if so, why? Absolutely. I think it would be really cool to learn how to run these models and understand mm -hmm. how they work. And yeah. I just think there's so much power in them. They can, well, as this quote kind of said, like, these things cannot fully be grasped by the human mind. And so yeah. you, put, you put together these neural networks and they're doing all kinds of stuff that, like, one brain or even a group of researchers' brains can't do. Mm -hmm. So I think this is kind of what we should be learning in the future. Absolutely. For sure. I agree. Well, thank you guys very much for listening to our podcast. I hope you guys learned a little bit about some new emerging technologies, whether it was uh, looking at camera trapping or drones or AI. Um, so, yeah, thank you guys very much for listening. <laughs>